So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Mahanaim, which means, you know, this is where God's at, okay? And so he said, this is God's camp, called it Mahanaim. And then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. So way down in the south part of Israel, way down. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau, Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company, which is left, will escape. So as we begin this text tonight, this is our backdrop. I draw your attention to where it says there in verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. There are many things that will make us greatly afraid and cause us distress, right? There really are. You know, they say that 80 to 90% of what makes us afraid never comes to pass. That's why so often the Bible tells us to be anxious for nothing, but to cast our cares upon the Lord. Our minds with a fallen nature, even a redeemed person with the power of the Holy Spirit, our minds move toward the rut of the old man. That's why we must be renewed daily, renew ourselves daily with the washing of water by the word, as it says in Ephesians and also in Psalm 119, that we need to renew our minds because our minds will naturally go into the rut of the past. Our mind will move toward the flesh, which is not only carnal and lustful, but it's also prone toward anxiety and fear and things that distress us. What are we going to do? And the flesh will take us to the temporal and cause great fear, but the spirit moves us toward eternal and gives us great peace. Be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Isaiah the prophet said, He will keep thee in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him because he trusts in thee. And it's something we have to work through. The things that can unsettle us, the open tabs. And we want to clear those tabs, but certain tabs just stay open. Some might stay open all the way till you breathe your last. It's like the anxiety tab, and it's on the, your desktop of your mind. It's on your laptop of your mind, and there's nothing you can do to change it. It might be a terminal illness. It might be an affliction that's going to be with you or a loved one till the end. It might be a financial situation that, in the best circumstances, you can even conjure up how to resolve it. It's going to take years to fix it. It can be in strange relationships that are hanging over family and business and things like that. It can be potential layoffs coming at work. It could be having been let go at work. It could be between between jobs. There are many things that cause anxiety and stress and fear. And Esau coming with 400 men, that is likely to cause anxiety, stress, and fear. Because the last thing he said to you is, I'm going to kill you. Or he posted it on Facebook when you could get away with it. And he said, I'm going to kill my brother, but not while my dad's alive. He tweeted it, he posted it, and he let everyone know, I'm coming for him. But 20 years has gone by. But he's not showing up like with just like his multiple wives or whatever that Esau had. He's showing up with 400 men. Now Laban showed up with less and said, I have power to do evil against you. And Jacob never said, no, you don't. Jacob was not 
the hunter of the earth like Esau. Jacob's a mild man. He's the computer guy. He's going to outsmart you. He's going to hack your computer, but he's not going to blow it up. That's Jacob. He's the tent dweller. And there's nothing he can do. Like when it comes to real war, it's like if he can't hack it and put a shield wall or whatever, he's in trouble. When it's really boom, boom time, he's got no boom, boom. But he's got a plan. He's always got a plan, which is a whole other application with Jacob. We can't be unsettled. We, we have to turn to the Lord, which brings us to the next part of the text. But it just like it says he's greatly afraid. He's not just afraid. He's greatly afraid. He is greatly distressed. And so far, we have no prayers of Jacob to the Lord in our record of his life in Genesis. God revealed himself to him at Bethel. God revealed himself to, the, to Jacob in dreams. God spoke to him with the disfavor in the previous chapters. But now, verse, verse 9, we read this. Then Jacob said, when he heard Esau's come with 400 men, it's time to get the prayer life going. It is time to fall on our knees and start crying. And you know, God will allow 400 men with Esau to come after you to get you on your knees, right? Of course he will. It's just like a little, little bit of hanging, Max Ocato called it one of his books. Let's see how you handle like when you're almost hung. Let's just kind of, let's put that fear in you where you really drop to your knees because 400 men are coming with Esau and you're greatly afraid and greatly distressed. And when you're greatly afraid and greatly distressed, we should all fall to our knees and cry out to the Lord because he's with us in the fire. We're never alone. Then Jacob said, oh, God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, the Lord who said to me, I love how he started this prayer. It's like he's been thinking about it, right? God of my father, Abraham. Hey, start your prayer. <laughs> Mention your grandfather, who happens to be not just your grandfather, but the father of all faith. You know, God of my grandfather, Abraham. God of my father, Isaac, the son of promise. The Lord who said to me, he's quoting the promise that God made him 20 years before. And that's what you need to stand on when you're greatly afraid and greatly distressed. And Esau's coming at you with 400 men. You told me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth that you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He's quoting the same promises that God made to Abraham, his grandfather. He's quoting the same promises that God made to his father, Isaac. They've been passed on to him, even as the promises made to the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through him as our Savior, have been passed on to every generation. These promises are universal. They're ours when we give our life to Christ in a new creation. All those promises are ours. And so whenever there's great fear or great distress, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the one with us in the fire, like Meshach, Shach, and Abednego. There's another in the fire, and it was one like the Son of the gods, which is the Son of God. And he is who we cry out to, and he is with us, and he's always with us. And those promises that were made to previous generations are just as sure now. See, we're reminded from Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he was for the human experience for people, because there's nothing new under the sun, but what he was in different generations and different cultures, whatever they face in their timeline, because all those different cultures faced their timeline together. So let's just say from 1800 to 1880, someone lived. And they might have lived in the United States and been a teenager during the War of 1812 or just about. 
or they might have been in Russia and been a sixth grader when Napoleon uh, entered Moscow and everyone fled Moscow, right? Like, there's, there's all, or what was going on with the dynasties in China? Like, we share the planet at the same time with our generation, but we share it in different cultures. And we all have a unique experience. And the Church of Jesus Christ has been here this entire time since he rose from the grave and ascended to the Father. And those promises, who knows how they sustain so many believers at different times under different circumstances in heartache and sorrow and fear and distress, how they sustain believers. Those promises are exactly the same for us to sustain us in whatever we're going to face in our life, in our generation, our timeline, and in whatever culture we're in. I pray for many people around the world today. It just turned out that way, praying for Russia and Ukraine and South America and different places. And those of you who have traveled the world and done ministry around the world, like Everett, of course, you've been many places. You can, you can see that. So when you start to do that, you picture the people in Russia and their culture. You picture the people in the Philippines, right, and their culture. You picture the people in Chile, and you picture the people uh, in Peru and, and even Israel. And the, the promises are passed on to every generation. And when we face the things that life brings us like this, the context is Esau has come with 400 men and there's great fear and distress. It is of great comfort to know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And those promises carried other generations and other believers in their cultures, in their timelines, and they'll carry us in our culture, in our timelines. And we're here, and then we're gone. And that's just the way it is. Jacob is finally on record for his prayer. And it's as simple as this. <laughs> God of my grandfather, God of my father, and God who told me, your word is what I'm standing on right now. So he's coming with 400, but you said from me a multitude more than the sands of the sea will come. So whatever's going to happen with Esau, man, I feel sick. I can't even sleep. I'm, but I got to give this to you because I need the peace that surpasses understanding. And that peace we have in Jesus Christ. We got to cast our cares upon the Lord, for He cares for us. And we got to stand on His word in whatever we're facing. There are things that are so terrifying that we must face. You know, like you got to go back to the doctor and you're going to find out just how serious that cancer is. That's terrifying. That's a terrifying night's sleep when you're waiting for what the next day brings. There are just, it's life. And there are so many things that will move your soul if you're not camped with Jesus Christ as our cornerstone, your cornerstone. Because when he's your author and finisher of your faith, then he's your cornerstone for the difficult complexities and stalemates. Sometimes life feels like a stalemate. I was playing a game of chess with the phone, you know, like whoever's on the other side of the phone playing chess. I just could not reel in that king. I haven't played chess in a long time. I was so frustrated. And then all of a sudden it goes, stalemate. End of the game. I was like, stalemate? I had Hannah watch me. I was like, oh, I'm going to get him. I got him. I got him on the move, you know? And then like, but I kind of forgot how to play chess. And then stalemate, stalemate. Like, I'm not playing for a tie, Hannah. And she goes, dad, it's good. It's the first time. You, you didn't lose. You know, I'm like, it's a tie. And sometimes it feels like that. And sometimes it feels like things are a stalemate. But he's the same. And he's there, and he's with us, and we stand on those promises, and we know that we're not moved because we're standing on those promises. So we read verse 13. 
So he lodged that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau's brother. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams. 30 milk cow, camels with their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Okay, pass over before me, put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, comes and meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? Whose are these that are in front of you? Then you say, There are your servant Jacob's. It's a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he's behind us. So he commanded the second and the third, all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with presents that go before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the presents went on before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. Jacob always had a plan, right? He just, it was a pretty good plan. I mean, if someone's coming to kill you and you got a lot of money, hey, pull out the checkbook. He's like going to buy his way out of it. He's just, it's like, hey. But there's more to it because I think we'll see as we go forward with Jacob. Jacob learned that it's not really about the temporal wealth, cows, camels, cars, houses, goats, they can all be replaced. They can all be lost. They can all be stolen. The real blessings are our people, the promises of God, love, the souls of human beings. The, the real blessings are not the possessions. When fear of eternity or fear of Distress come like you realize like you can't buy your way out of terminal cancer. There's just certain you just can't buy your way out of like the grave. You're gonna die. That's what's so shocking for me with my mom. It's just she was an iron lady. I just could never picture my mom not being alive and being that rock, but she's gone. And no one defies the grave except Jesus, who rose from the grave and promises us a glorified body. But David said it best: I go the way of all men, and we will. So, like Jesus said in the parable with Luke, where the man said, arbitrate me, my brother. We have to settle the estate, and he's not given his fair share. How contextual is that for life? And Jesus said, who made me an arbitrator over you? And then he said, there's a man who built bar- who was fruitful, and said, I'm going to build bigger barns, and I say, soul, all is well. I'm going to go at ease. Well, you foolish man, tonight your soul will be required of you, and who will get your wealth then? Solomon, who had all that wealth, said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 2. Man, I go in everything, but some nitwit's going to waste it after I'm gone. And this too is an evil I've seen under the sun. Vanity, vanity. That's a loose translation, but it's essentially the core of what he's saying there in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. When you're fearing for your life, all the money in the world, it's just, it's nothing like, you, you can't take it with you, right? We always say that, you can't take it with you. People strive and strive and strive and strive for possessions, and you can't take it with you. It all gets left behind. It all gets redistributed. When my mom's house goes on the market this, later this year, it's going to be really hard because my wife grew up in the house that no one else lived in, too. 1936 Parkhest Drive off Birmingham is where Jennifer grew up. and She grew up in that house her whole life. And only the George family lived in that house. And when that house was sold in 1999, it was built in 61. My father-in-law has video of them building Interstate 5 from his, the view of his house on Birmingham, the interstate. The George family is the only family that lives in that house. And when I was thinking, my mom bought her house, she's the only one that's ever lived in that house. I'm like, and the furniture is leaving, it's so hard to even think of this house. 
to think of anyone else being in this house just guts me. It's gutted. And Jennifer goes, it hurt me for at least a decade. Every time we drive by Birmingham, I'd think of that house. Just things you don't think about. But here's the thing. Someone else gets the house. Someone else moves into the house. All those houses down there by the pier, those old neighborhoods, Lake Street and all that, some of those houses have been there since the 20s or even before that. They survived the Long Beach earthquake in 33. Lots of people live in those houses, and if you own one, good for you. It's worth a million dollars. But the, the houses, get, they just change owners. So the real issue isn't the house, but the home and the people that live there. That's the real treasure. That's what really matters. So you can, you can write checks from IRAs or the estates or CDs and cash them in and try and appease everybody and say, hey, look, this will make you happy. Take all the money. Don't forget what Father Abraham said when he came back from the slaughter of the kings. King of Solomon said, hey, you can have everything. Just give me the people because men like to control men. And men make money. So the kings of Sodom knew they could just make more money from those people. But Abraham said, I'm not taking anything from you. I'm not taking anything from you. Not a sandal strap. I'm taking nothing from you. Lest you say you made Abraham great. Only God makes me great. Everything I have is from the Lord. Everything I have belongs to the Lord and it's going back to the Lord. That's what Abraham said. And then Melchizedek came along and gave him a tithe. He tithed to Melchizedek because he's the prince of peace and the prince of, well, he's the prince of Salem. He's the king of Salem. You see Jacob's plan here. It's a pretty good plan. It's a good business plan. It's a good model for when someone wants to kill you and come with 400 people and you're thinking the worst. But in the end, that's not going to work. It's just amazing when you like are knocking on eternity the things that really matter. It's people. It's love. It's legacy. That's it. All else is just a distant memory. Ancient civilizations that... Magazines can show pictures of dust in the middle of nowhere buried 20 feet below sand. They lived, they died. They had the human experience. We lived, we died, we had the human experience. And the only thing that matters is the love of Jesus, the love of God demonstrated through Jesus, received through faith in Jesus, and lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit on behalf of Jesus. That's all that matters. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love because love never fails. Jacob's got a divine appointment, verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and crossed over the fort at Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, Jacob, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen the God face to face and my life is preserved. And just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip and therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is in the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank. If your Bible has titles over segments like mine does, it might have a title for this. Mine says wrestling with God, which is exactly what it is. Jacob wrestled with God. But in his wrestling, 
he was blessed by God. This was our whole study Saturday night, topically, where we talked about this, that in our human experience, it's inevitable to come to saving faith that we wrestle with God, where we surrender our pride, our flesh, our dreams, our, all those things get surrendered to the Lord, and we receive Christ. And we're born from above, not born of man. And there's a wrestling that brings us to it. The things that break us down from the rebels of sons of Adam and daughters of Eve that bring us to a brokenness where we're able to humble ourselves and receive Christ and ask him into our life. And there's a wrestling of the pride of men and the pride of women that brings us to that place of brokenness. And it might come early in life, which is obviously more favorable than later, but it, it comes. And maybe there's a thief on the cross and you'd find to say, I am so guilty, I'm so ashamed, and I'm completely broken, and Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Whatever it takes. When Jesus struck down Saul of Tarsus on the way to Damascus, and he was just, he's just the anger, he, he claimed to serve God, but he's fighting the Son of God and the, the plans of God and all the promises of God. And who knew the scriptures like Saul of Tarsus? But he saw them like his ink and paper on a scroll. He didn't, he didn't, the natural man, he just didn't see. He didn't understand. But then when Jesus struck him down, he was blinded. And it was a divine appointment between him and the Lord. He was blinded for a few days. And he had a lot to think about when he wrestled with God. But Jesus said to him, it's hard to kick against the, kick against the goads, isn't it? You've been wrestling with me and fighting me for a long time. Here's what's going to happen. Here's the way it's going to work. And what did, what did Saul do when he was... The scales came off his eyes. He received Christ. He was water baptized. He received the Spirit. And then he was a spark plug until his martyrdom decades later. We all wrestle with God to be saved because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So he has to humble us. And we usually resist that. But then in our calling with the Lord and the things that God has for our life, we often wrestle with God as well. We just want to hold on to just something or somebody, or some dream. But we just have to let go and fully trust the Lord. We have to admire Elisha the prophet, where when Elijah walked by him and he cast his coat on him, the mantle, saying, you're called to be my apprentice or whatever, he was working for his father in the field. He had the ox and he had the plow and he's doing everything. When that moment happened, he understood the magnitude of the moment and he completely let go. And he cut up that wood and he sacrificed that cow, that ox. He was never going back. He let it go and he was all in to what God wanted to do in his life. And Jacob has to learn for all the good plans you have, your plan does not require trusting in the Lord nearly as much as having nothing but the mercies of the Lord to trust in in your circumstance and situation. From whence does our help come? It comes from the Lord. From Genesis to Revelation, it's trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your understanding. And your understanding is, I'm going to send my assets out. I'm bringing the checkbook from this bank, the checkbook from this bank, and the checkbook from that bank. I'm just going to write checks to Esau, and I'm going to write enough until he's happy and he doesn't want to kill me. That's how we think. But that's, that's not the way it's going to work at all, at all. So he wrestles with the Lord, and notice This is deep soul stuff. This is the deep soul stuff. This isn't surface like, am I going to go forward at Harvest Crusade, which is a pretty good wrestling match as well. Or when someone says, do you want to pray to receive the Lord? And they're like, eh, you know, that's legitimate. 
But this is more like God's been working in my life for decades, and I, I, I just, you know, it's like I, I, I still got to be in control. And the Lord's like, I, I just, I just, man, you're all, and you think you're winning. We talked about this, like where, when you wrestle with your kids, you let them feel like they're winning because you just ease up the power. That's like what the Lord's doing with Jacob. And Jacob's like, he's won. He's wrestled all night with the Lord in person, probably Jesus himself or the angel of the Lord or an angel of the Lord, if you will. Because no one can see God and live. So he saw God and lived. And the only way you can see God and live is if it's Jesus Christ, because no one has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten of the Father, the Son, he has declared him to us, we're told. And that's why these Old Testament Christophanies or Theophanies where Christ appears because he's outside of time and he has worked in the Old Testament. When the commander of the Lord's army appeared to Joshua, and Joshua goes, who are you? Like, are you forced against us? He goes, no, but it's the command of the Lord. I've come. And what does Joshua do? He falls on his face and worships the command of the Lord's army. Like, angels don't receive worship. That's the Lord. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to march around the city seven times. Like, you, that's, that's, look, Joshua, you've been a great general for 40 years. And you've won some good battles against the Malachites, Sihon, and Og. But now I'm commanding this army. No, but as a command of the Lord's army, I've now come. Here's how it goes. And that's what we need to come to. Jacob was alone. And in the end, ultimately, when we wrestle with God, we're alone. You can have a spouse. You can have people that love you, parents above you, adult kids beneath you, little kids beneath you. But really, those deep things of the soul are one-on-one. I talked about this. I've been to Calvary Chapel wrestling meets before, and there's a bunch of wrestlers, but only two people wrestle at the same time. It's you and that guy. It's, it's one-on-one. It's the deep issues of the soul that God's working on with Jacob here. And then you wrestle with God, and when you wrestle with God, you win when you surrender. And you got to love what Jacob said here. I'm not letting go till you bless me. And that needs to be the end result of every wrestling with God, that whatever deep thing that's going on in our soul, in our heart, in our life, that we do not let go without the blessing. Because all things work together for good, those who are called according to his purposes and being conformed to the image of Christ, because they work together for good to those who love God. And so every trial and tribulation that produces maturity and produces faith, it's a wrestling. And, and it's like, we can't let go of that trial and not, not, not be blessed. We have to get the blessing. We have to receive the blessing that's meant to happen in our character and in our life and from our life to the benefit of others through that wrestling with God. We have to let him break us. And then we have to just not let go until we have the blessing. We got to get the blessing. We can't get bitter. We got to get blessed. And many people wrestle with God and they get bitter. They don't get better. They get bitter. But we got to be broken and we got to be blessed and get the blessing. Because if we're broken, there's a blessing for us, for everyone on this planet, and for all eternity. And if you get the, the blessing from the brokenness, you tap out, then you get the new name. You're not heel grabber. It's not three droves of assets that you can send against your brother. It's just you depending on God because you've seen God face to face. And if he gives you favor, he gives you favor. If he gives you disfavor, he gives you disfavor. He's ultimately over our lives and we can trust him with everything. But we have to be different. There's nothing more difficult to see in life than someone who's wrestling with God 
And they don't come out with a blessing, and they don't come out different. Even speaking with someone recently, I just said, I don't know how people go through this stuff without the Lord. I don't know, I don't know how they do it. Like, how do people face, face tragedy and trials and tribulations and death without the Lord? I don't know how they do it, because I've faced a lot of difficult things in 58 years, and I, I just, I can't imagine Jesus not being between me and those things. We've got to get the blessing, and we've got to be different. You were Jacob, hill grabber, but now you're Israel, prince of God. You are not the same. You're so different, we're going to change your name. You're Simon, but you will be Peter. You're Sarah, but you're Sarah. You're Abram, but you're Abraham. It's an upgrade. When God, when you wrestle with God, the deep things of life, where you cast your soul upon like Hannah, weeping, 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 Samuel chapter 1. Oh, just, just, just gutted, just gutted. You read Samuel chapter 1, that's a woman that's gutted. And she says, Finally, she breaks. Whatever comes from my womb is yours. And she gave that child to the Lord. And that, of course, was Samuel the prophet. And God gave her a bunch more children. But Samuel, we have to be broken. We need to get the blessing. And we have to be better. We can't be heel grabber when we walk off the mat with a wrestling match with God. We have to be princess of God, prince of God. We have to be a better version by the power of the Holy Spirit who we're meant to be than who we were before that wrestling match began. Now, chapter 3 is more narrative, but there's a few more things we want to look at here. Because the story, so he's fled from Laban, one-on-one with the Lord, and now he is going to face Esau. Verse 1, now Jacob lifted his eyes, looked, and there was Esau coming with him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and the children in the front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them, bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he, Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant... Then the maidservants came near, and they and their children, they bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I sent? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. Inasmuch as I've seen your face, as though I've seen the face of God, which he had just done, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt gracious with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, hey, let, let us take our journey. Let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak. The flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should dry them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace, which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padam Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. 
Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel. Literally, God, the God of Israel, is what he said for the altar. These two brothers will come together again to bury their father. Go figure. Like I said, there's nothing new under the sun in the human experience. They were so different. They were so different. Esau married the women that were a grief to his parents. Remember that? And then he married more women from the sense of Ishmael, hoping that would work out well, and that that didn't go so well. He married Canaanite women, which grieved his parents. Then he married Ishmaelite women to kind of Elisa or distant relatives, and he just didn't get it. He just didn't get it. There's a whole chapter dedicated to Esau's descendants right around the corner. We'll talk more about Esau when we get there. And you share the plan with Esau. Whoever he is, whoever she is, you share the plan with Esau. There's probably an Esau in all of our lives. Someone who's around the blessings, kind of gets the blessings, but always seems a day late and a dollar short when it comes to the spiritual things. Like, huh. Like, they're there, but they're not sure. Yeah, are they getting it? I don't know. You know, like, are they responding to it? Can't say. But they're still blessed. Because remember, Esau got the leftover blessings, and Esau wanted temporal. He's a man of the earth, and he had lots of blessings. We see that. He's well-blessed. Notice something interesting. The thing that caused the dispute where Jacob had to run for his life is that he took the blessings or received the blessings that were his anyways. And the context would be like the estate, the trust, everything that dad received from Grandpa Abraham, basically all of Israel, if you will. And Esau's like, where's my part of the will, the trust, the estate? Is it page nine? Is there an addendum to this trust? What do I get in this? And... Isaac said, well, you know, your brother took it all, but uh, well, give me a blessing too. So he pronounced a blessing on him. And look at the afterglow, he has a blessing. He was blessed. He had good things, didn't he? Esau, we'll see. He had princes and kings come from him. Anywhere near the glory where the, the spot where the glory comes out, you're going you're gonna to get blessed. They're, they, were, they were in the line. They just weren't the godly line, but they were close to it. It's like your relatives that aren't saved and hang out with you. And you just seem to... Christmas just seems a little fuller. Easter has a, is a lot deeper. The sky is bluer. The grass is greener. You have more afflictions, but handle it better. They have less afflictions and complain about everything. They become religious, and you trust in a relationship. That's the difference between Jacob and Esau. But notice the point of conflict was temporal wealth. That's really what put it all in motion 20 years before. But look what Esau says in verse 9. I have enough, my brother, Keep what you have for yourself. I would suggest to you, Esau learned something. God took care of him. I have enough. And then what does Jacob say down here in verse 11? I have enough. Family relationships, which get sticky, they're a lot better when everyone can say they have enough. (laughs) Do you let the reader understand? If everyone in a family gathering can say, I have enough, then it's a really, everyone goes their way and it's a pretty happy ending. I have enough. You go. I have enough. When the family shifts from takers to givers, everybody has enough. Because you realize it's not about what the wealth represents, but the wealth is the people. And the relationships. I have enough. 
How many camels is enough? How many cars are enough? How many houses are enough? How many Bedouin tents are enough? How much is enough? If it's the world and it's Rockefeller, just a little bit more. If it's the kingdom, we're content in the real blessings. Enough, enough. I think it's crazy. Things that can get us so worked up at one time in our life in disputes, the same people can come together years later and say, it's so silly. I have enough. I was speaking with someone this last week who handles estates. Out of state, handles estates. And he said something very interesting to me. He said, you know, Joy, there are so many uh, estates that can't be settled with large sums for people because people will purposely not sign off on things just to punish someone. They'll, they'll choose not to receive their blessing in the estate just to kink someone else and keep them from getting their blessings. He goes, you'd be surprised what we see in our firm. I said, no kidding? Yeah, like, who would do that? Someone who got bitter and not better. That's who. I gave Esau some credit. He deserved some credit. He didn't want to kill his brother anymore. He just wanted to be reconciled, go back to Mount Seir. Jacob buys some parcel, builds a house. All right, what's next? This chapter of his life is over. But Amram, kids, grandkids are coming, and some trials and tribulations are around the corner. But he got to the promised land, a whole new chapter of his life, a whole new beginning, a whole new beginning. And now he's the son of promise in the land, buys the property, respecting that which is around him. And what does he do? He builds an altar and says, God, the God of Israel. He went from that brokenness, receiving those blessings and that name change. And he got to where God told him he would go. And he bought that property. And he built an altar and said, God, the God of Israel. He basically said, God is everything. And don't call me Jacob. You call me Israel. Because Jacob is like someone that was water baptized, the one left in the water. Because if anyone be in Christ or a new creation, all things have passed away, all things are new. Don't you call me, don't say like the God of Jacob in that sense. God said, your name is Israel. And he got there in a whole new chapter of his life, a whole new beginning of his life, a brand new start, a total reboot. It's like football teams when they get new uniforms or new colors or whatever. Starting all over. God, the God of Israel. Now, for thousands of years, people say the God of Israel. But for Israel, he is Israel. (laughs) It's like you saying, God, the God of Joey, the God of Joanne, the God of Robert, the God of Jennifer, right? The God of Eric. God, the God of Eric. You know, like that's that's what it's saying. You're my God. And you've taught me to trust in you and to look to you in all things. Amen? It's an altar only you can build. I can't build your altar for you. It's one you build from your heart when we're fully yielded to the Lord.